everybody this is sean harwell and this is the never heard of a podcast this is a show where we talk about all the movies that have fallen through our cracks the plural crack today belongs to none other than our hmm adjunct what am i calling you uh <laughs> part-time host a- adjunct podcaster yeah that sounds that sounds fine co-substitute teacher <laughs> Brian Crane, thank you again for filling in for Craig while he's having his month-long uh, vacation. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Uh, excited uh, after having uh, seen the movie we're going to talk about. Pretty hyped. Yeah. But otherwise, I'm doing fine. How about you? Well, you are a noted hype man, so well, uh, yes. that's good. <laughs> Got my hair cut looking slick. Oh, wow. Just doing the, uh, the, the Brillo cream just straight back. <laughs> Straight back. Yep. <laughs> nice. Mm-hmm. Nice. I know your look. If I don't feel it dripping on my neck, uh, <laughs> then I'm not doing it right. Yeah. Now, um, that's enough hair talk, but I do like to keep the uh, the people posted because I know they're real oh, interested no. in that. Absolutely. Anyway, as you well know, sir, you can find out anything you want to know about our show by going to neverheardpodcast.com. That's our uh, website home for what we do here. You can find all of our episodes along with you know, some trailers, some posters, email address. If you want to make suggestions, you can even do that we'd appreciate them uh also all our social media links come say hello we got some good feedback so far on the tee up episode we did about michael mann's early film the keep from 1983 so we're going to do a deep dive on that as well and uh yeah if you've seen it and disagree with everything i'm about to say well most importantly if you disagree with everything brian's about to say yeah uh please let us know far more likely (laughs) we'll see we shall see first though brian gotta do a slight it's not quite a correction corner but apologies corner Mm -hmm. you know you may recall in the tee-up episode, I had a quote from Michael Mann talking about the set design of the keep, where he referenced a gentleman by the name of Albert Speer. Yes, yes, and we didn't know who he was, or at least I didn't. We know. did not, yeah. and uh, my lovely wife listened to the podcast and came into the room and said, <laughs> by the way, Albert Speer was the architect of the Holocaust. And uh, uh, feels that's like a, That's a good guy to know. Feels like we should have known that. Uh, yeah, we should. Have. Thank you, Gretchen. We are now informed, yes. and I will not forget that. Yes. And also, apologies to everyone that was uh, <laughs> punching their steering wheel and driving off the road in anger. Yes, I'm glad uh, Gretchen is as knowledgeable and well informed about most things as she is. That helped us out. I know. I mean, look, like the whole basis of this podcast is about stuff we don't know. Yeah, essentially. I like, mean, you're right. You can't really come yeah. after us for that. You know, that's, the, that's you our can. whole thing. <laughs> it's usually limited to movies. But anyway. Yeah. But also, Brian, this is usually the part of the show where I ask Craig mm. what else he's watched. So I'll ask you if you have any sort of. Oh, you just don't want to text him? You just want to text him and see what he's watching? <laughs> no, I was actually talking about you. I mean, God only knows what he's watching right oh, now. Yeah, no, that's. I can imagine it right now. Yikes. Yeah, he's got a real, real fat subscription to Cinemax, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> have you seen anything recently of note that is worth mentioning? Thank you for asking. I certainly have. I watched the five-part miniseries Chernobyl. I did too. Good. Yes. Personally blown away. I really, really liked that show. 
I, I thought it was both riveting and entertaining in its way, but also informative because I think they had a real dedication to telling the story as honestly as they could and um, just gripping great television. I just, and I also love that they, they dropped it once one episode every week to kind of build mm-hmm. that audience, you know? Yeah, I can't, can't say enough about it. Just like the cast, uh, Craig, I'm not sure if it's Mazin or Mazin. I, I, I know. It's Mazin. Mazin. I just love his story. You know, he's been doing this for years and years and years as a comedy guy, so I'm going to switch to drama. And first shot out of the gate, like, wow. I mean, it's one of the top-ranked shows already on like IMDb and such. Uh, what did you think of it? I thought it was very, very good. Stellar cast. I mean, across Mm. the board, just some really good performances. I like the decision to not use Russian accents. Same. I had a discussion with another listener today, and he said that that kind of bugged him at first, and he hasn't got back into it. But I think that's a shame, and you should look past that. Oh, completely. I totally agree. Bad fake Russian accents would have been way worse. Yes. It's it's really powerful stuff. There's a great, uh, insightful podcast that Craig Mazin did with Peter Sagal of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, actually, mm. where they discuss episode by episode these series, and they do a lot of, is this true? Is that true? What is that based on? And uh. you should listen to that. There's definitely some creative license, licenses that they took for dramatic reasons. I think most of them are well justified yeah. and worthwhile. Mm-hmm. And I also learned today that they have have posted the screenplays of all five episodes. Oh, really? Yeah, I think if you look for the Script Notes podcast that Craig Mazin co-hosts with John August, you can find those and uh, take a look. Uh, there's definitely some stuff apparently in them that was cut out and did not make the final edits of, of that series. And uh, yeah, and, and Craig has been doing that podcast for, for a very long time, is that right? Yeah, quite a while, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's a good, I mean, it, it's sort of like in screenwriting circles, that's probably the big dog. Oh, wow. Uh, at least as far as as I'm aware. Yeah, usually a pretty good listen. Oh, great. Yeah, interesting subject matter for sure. Definitely, sadly, feels extremely relevant. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. a good a good warning reminder of um, the power of nuclear energy. <laughs> Certainly so. Certainly so. And also the the cost of lies and what yes. what what, uh, what that can read yeah he had that one great line i don't know if he invented it or, or what but you know every lie uh, incurs a debt to the truth mm-hmm. and and i was just like whoa yeah that just hit me immediately like this yep. so, something so uh well for lack of a better word true about that line that um just impressive all around yeah anything else no that's kind of the thing that's sort of just been um kind of playing on my mind anything else that i've seen i think has been minor by comparison so gotcha chernobyl all the way i got a couple i'm gonna mention here yeah first i have to draw attention to a movie called cold war which is from the director who i believe is polish and i'm not even gonna attempt to pronounce his name because <laughs> I, I will butcher it and uh-huh. he's really really good he did a, a movie called Ida a few years back he was nominated for the best director this past year and also, they were nominated for Best Cinematography. And damn it, I think they, they were robbed. I think they should have won. Mm-hmm. It was a tough battle between this and uh, another black and white foreign language film at the Oscars, which is rare, obviously, in oh, 2019. Yeah, no kidding. I thought Roma looked fantastic, but but this movie just uh, one of the best wow. black and white, I'm assuming, shot on digital films that I've ever seen. 
And a really powerful story, great sort of two-hander performance, and it's uh, streaming in 4K on Amazon Prime. If you're a fan of drama, I think that's a, it's a good one, Cold War, folks. I also finally got around to watching the movie A Most Wanted Man. I know you've read some Le Carre. Ah, uh, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. I have not. Have you seen this movie? Which one is it? Is that the one with uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman? It is indeed, yes. Ah, yes, I did see that one. Yes, I have seen it. I was kind of let down by that movie, man. I gotta say, oh, yeah. um, it's good, yeah. But it's it's so surface level. It, by the end of it, I was like, eh, that would have been a really solid episode of a TV series, but <laughs> but not a feature. And it's weird. Like I don't have that reaction a lot to yeah. But it it is about the job they do, and I love procedurals. Like I, that oh, works sure. for me. But there was really there was like not much, if anything, outside of that. Yeah, that drew me in, or that was even revealed. Yeah, I kind of left the theater feeling um, a, a little like the film was wanting. You know, I thought Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance was yeah, I mean, incredible. Like I just loved the moment, like when when he's sort of realized what's happened near the end, and he just like kind of lets out this primal scream. I don't know. I just thought that was pretty moving in its way. And, Great ending. Uh, yeah, and, and also the um, it was actually the first time I'd heard a Tom Waits song that I could put a, a name to, and that was. The, that was the end of, uh, I think it was Hoist That Rag. And they used that over the end credits. Oh, yeah. And it's just, it's a great track. And, and it kind of turned me on to all his other stuff. So um, great music selection in, in, in itself. But but I just find that I only, I can remember that movie just by bits of, of moments. But the thrust of the story, I don't have much recollection of. So I don't know if it stayed with me the, the way a, perhaps a, more, a stronger movie would have. And here, here's something else that kind of bugged me about it, and it sort of ties into Chernobyl, and also we maybe we'll have this discussion with the Keep a little bit. Philip Seymour Hoffman, obviously amazing. You got Rachel oh. McAdams, Robin Wright, mm. Willem Dafoe, uh, sort of your top-line actors in this piece, right? Right. All-American, all doing German accents. <laughs> yes. But then you've got Daniel Bruhl, Nina Haas, of the amazing movie Phoenix that Craig and I discussed, yeah. Uh, Vicky Creeps, who was, or Cripes, I don't know how you pronounce her last name, but she was the leading actress in Phantom Thread. And so that's like three, I think, really, really talented actors who, if they're not German, and I don't think Vicky is, they're all at least from that area. <laughs> yeah. And none, they, they, between the three of them, maybe say like six lines total. And so it's just like... <laughs> <laughs> you know this is i mean i get it like you can't necessarily get a movie bankrolled through hollywood with uh but it's got to be weird for them to be sitting there thinking you know i'm not i'm not buying this accent from this guy well yeah i thought the accents were i thought uh hoffman's was great yeah and uh you know defoe's was not bad either mcadams as well yeah but it's you know it's just like well it's, it's kind of weird we're not getting these parts and and these americans are so i don't know <laughs> right it, it just was one of those things that i thought about yeah but did you think that the, the german accents in the movie were were odd or no not really no, no, okay. i mean they're, they're fine it's just, yeah. it's just more just about the opportunity of it all the, yeah yeah no, really talented people but just you know in that situation you get stuck to the supporting cast yeah completely shall we talk about the keep sir did you bring your milk duds I brought them. I'm going to, as soon as I start talking, I'm going to fill my mouth with 10 of them. And then we're going to go off to the races. I think it's going to be great. I can't imagine it won't be. (laughs) You have death around you. Your hands! No. 
and what you sense is my fade in the death camp. A place where people gather to die. A place where people are murdered. My people are murdered. Yes, and others smaller here. Who does this? The leader in Berlin. And the soldiers in black. I will destroy them! Okay, in case you'd missed last episode, The Keep, again, is from 1983. It was directed by Michael Mann. He wrote the screenplay based on the F. Paul Wilson novel, although apparently uh, not to F. Paul Wilson's approval. (laughs) Certainly not. (laughs) You've got Scott Glenn, Ian McKellen, Alberta Watson, Jürgen Prochnow, Gabriel Byrne, and a bunch of villagers. And uh, this is the logline. Nazis are forced to turn to a Jewish historian for help in a battling the ancient demon they have inadvertently freed from its prison. As you might imagine, that prison is indeed the keep of the title. Brian? Yes. You picked this movie. <laughs> you... I, I heard some accusation in that. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's not a shot fired. You watched it? Yes. I understand you even read the novel. Yes, I read the novel in preparation for this. What an overachiever I was yeah, for this. Yeah, I know. You <laughs> get like a star. That's all I'm after, man. Just one gold star. That's it. I'm good. Uh, it's not really gold. It's more of a bronze. But anyway, <laughs> tell me about that experience. What did you think of the book? Let's start with that. Tell me the order in which you achieved these two things. Book first or movie first? I started the book. Then I watched the movie, and then I finished the book. So, okay. and, I, and I finished the book about an hour ago. Wow, okay, so it's fresh. To the point where it's actually starting to crowd out some of what I remember from the movie, which I just oh, watched. <laughs> I'm like, uh-oh, I'm, I'm not doing this right. But, um, okay. <laughs> but the experience of, it was, it was odd because at certain points you're like, wow, this, the movie really deviated so, so much from the book. And at other points you're like, wow. This was a very reverent, like literal adaptation of this book. So it would kind of go back and forth where Michael Mann is clearly like, well, I don't like this stuff, but I like this, or I don't know how to deal with how he's done this, so I'm going to do this. And then obviously, as we were talking about in the tee-up, I don't have money to do this, so instead we'll do this. And, and so it was kind of interesting as an exercise in seeing what Michael Mann was working from, and what he took from that to make his film. And I think that was very, a lot of insights from that experience. But as a book, it is, it's okay. You know, it's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a very, it's a kind of serviceable horror novel. Okay. Some stuff is stronger than other stuff. I think it's got some good scary bits in it that mm-hmm. for the most part were entirely stripped from the film. I think mm-hmm. Michael Mann was always kind of going for dreamy and strange than he was going for anything like that even smacked of your standard horror fair that was that which the marketing department you know didn't get that memo they were trying you know anything they could get to make it seem like a real horror movie they were doing and, and michael mann was trying to get as far away from that uh, as possible even even from what was in the book so you're saying you didn't imagine the book with a tangerine dream score <laughs> i did not it did that, that didn't that didn't go together for me um actually okay but in terms of like you know which was better I'd say they were, they feel like two completely separate entities in a way. I feel, I feel that if Michael Mann had 
hewed more closely to the novel and some of the the plot elements. And to some extent, maybe he did, and, and, and those were the things that got cut out. I think the movie would have been more successful just because there are kind of more relatable moments or something like that where, you know, the bad guy talks about where he comes from and blah, 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 and you're like, oh, this is cool. And Michael Mann's just like, no, that makes him not mysterious enough, so let's cut that and, and that sort of thing. So just to, in terms of seeing like what the book was like versus what the movie was like, very interesting to kind of do that at the same time. Well, I was going to ask you, and maybe you just kind of answered that, but I kind of started to get the impression by the last you know, half hour of the film that the things that had been excised from this movie were sort of playing a part in the success of the plot that was left. Mm-hmm. Did that seem to be the case to you after reading it as far as like, okay, they just they yeah. left this these things out Right. And what's in the movie is sort of like the piecemeal version of that, or is it just yeah, basically radiation. I, I, I felt like there there were things that were left on the cutting room floor, like the like the uh, the affair between Glycan and yeah. and and the, and the, the the woman I'm, Ava or Eva, yeah. You know that just in the movie it just happens. Mm-hmm. And in the book, it's it's built up. There are moments they both play the mandolin together, and they're you know, making eyes at each other and this sort of thing. You're like, okay, I'll buy it, whatever. Well, if they play the mandolin together, I mean, how does sparks <laughs> I mean, not fly? It's, it's like something, you know, as opposed to the movie where it's just like, I see you, you see me, let's let's do this, right? You know, oh, know yeah. yeah. So I, I can only imagine that's that that's from the half hour or so that was cut by the studio. Right. And actually it just seemed like the exposition that was left in the film was all kind of about the wrong stuff in at least to successfully bring the story to a kind of satisfying plot conclusion in essence. So we didn't learn much about Glaken, we didn't learn much about Molasar, where they come from, what they do and uh, why they have to have this last titanic battle and all that stuff is covered and and you know somewhat interesting in the book and and it's just not at all there in in the film and so it's so it's like all this stuff is happening but you don't understand why in the universe of the movie it's important so it, it leaves you feeling a little empty to that extent i think i think if anything you know you're never supposed to have tons and tons of exposition in a movie show don't tell right yeah and he just did it with, you know, this kind of conflict between Warman and uh, Kickner or, or the uh, SS guy. Mm-hmm. To me, I think that was that was sort of putting the emphasis and the exposition in the wrong place. You know, we needed to know more about the, the A story, I thought. I would agree with that. Now, I mean, I guess we should be at least aware that maybe this this isn't really Michael Mann's fault at all. Yes. Knowing that he turned in a two-hour cut and they cut at least 25 minutes out of it. Yeah. Here amount being the day in that situation. Very good point. So who knows? And uh, you got to say right off the bat... Not only does this movie need a director's cut, it desperately needs an HD transfer. Oh, my goodness. At least, I think, in iTunes and Google Play, they only had an SD version available. You know, you can pop a DVD in and it still looks fine. Right. This, There were times where just the little text on screen of, like, the location that Scott Glenn was in was like, that's really hard to read. Yeah, it really was. Yeah. So pixelated. Yeah. Yeah, there's times where it looked pretty good, and you could certainly tell that it could be a good-looking movie, I think, across the board. Oh, definitely. There's some really kind of cool shots and effects and 
my God, the smoke machine budget on this movie must have been <laughs> astronomical. I mean, no, it must have been like at least more than the craft services, I have to imagine. Absolutely. But um, yeah, so there's that. Mm-hmm. The sound design, I think, it was as bad as described. Yeah. I would absolutely recommend watching with the subtitles as I did. Yes. And it's... there, I mean, there's times where I'm like, if I'm in the theater, I, don't, I would have no clue. You don't have a clue what they're saying because you can't turn up the volume for this particular part where Scott Glenn is whispering or something. Right. I mean, it, it's that sort of, it, there's it's, that much range in the in the, the volume between moments. And, and even just the, the clarity of what the sound effects are supposed to be. There was a, yeah. a, there was a big section near the end where, which is like when things are getting really spooky or whatever. And it sounds like this um, this generator is whirring. And I'm like, wait, is that a generator or is that like... What is that? Yeah. The demon. And I think when I first heard it, I was like, oh, it's a generator. And then later on, I'm like, oh, no, I think that's supposed to be like Molossar, like moving around the keep or something. So that just made zero sense to me. Yeah. Okay. So, (laughs) yeah, I want to... I've got two big questions I want to ask you. But first, I think it's going to require me just sort of giving a little bit of exposition to the story itself and the main components. So the opening is taking into this small, they're in Romania, right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Romanian village. It's beautiful. There's, I mean, right in the heart of the mountains. Oh, and that opening is great. I thought. Yeah. It's a really cool opening, heavy on tone, heavy on the tangerine dream, (laughs) lots of fog. I think it starts with just a white screen and then you just sort of dissolve to these trees. Mm. Uh, We see these military vehicles roll into this very, very small, but beautiful town. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can't even call it a town. It's like, yeah, it's like a collection of like three or four houses or something, right? Yeah, yeah, and a church, I think. Yeah. And at the end of it, at this road, there is this structure known as the keep. It's basically like a slanted wall made out of stones. Mm-hmm. There's a discussion about how they have smaller stones on the outside and larger stones on the inside as if it were built backwards. Jürgen Prochnow is kind of the leader of these particular German soldiers. I asked you this before we began because I was still <laughs> confused by the end of it. Yeah. Because there is a distinction when Gabriel Byrne shows up later, Jürgen Prochnow is not a member of the Nazi party. He is just strictly a German soldier. Right. And that plays heavily into the differences of ideology that he has later on with Byrne. But first, we go into the keep. We see the, what was it, like 85, 108 crosses built into the wall made out of nickel. Mm-hmm. No one is supposed to touch the crosses. There's an old man named Alexandru there and his two sons. He's the keeper of the keep, I guess, if you yeah. will. Keep the keepkeeper, yeah. Who I believe disappears for the rest of the movie, doesn't he? Or am I? Did oh, he get yeah. killed? He, no, I don't think he gets killed. He just like you know what I'm heading out, and we just never see him again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, which is That's always a great thing to do to a character that uh, features prominently in the exposition <sighs> of your entire movie. Yes. <laughs> Prakna and his men have been sent there to guard this pass. That's one of the questions I have. Yeah. What exactly are they doing there? Is that made clear in the book? Like, why specifically are they there? Because it is not long. It is that evening that I think the first victim of the monster in the keep is born. Yeah. I found myself asking 
why, why don't they just leave? Like, what what is really holding them there in the middle of nowhere? I mean, nowhere. Exactly. And I, and I think that there is that the sort of mystification that, that's sort of in the book is like, well, why, why are they positioned us here? And it's, sort of, it's, it's in some place that F. Paul Wilson made up called the Dinu Pass. Some order from up on high said this, this is valuable, even though Romania is an ally state or so they say. And, you know, there's no real reason to station men in a sort of defensive position in an ally state. Here they are, they're, they're positioned there. And so the reason they just don't leave is because they were ordered to hold it. And so in order for, for them to abandon their post, he has to get permission. He asks German high command, hey, something is murdering my men, requesting permission to, to you know, vacate, to evacuate, to get out of here. And instead they send this SS battalion in. Okay. Because they think, oh, well, clearly there's some romanian uh, partisans as they call them who are killing german soldiers and we need to come in and use our ss tactics to to keep that from happening okay well here's i i have a couple things that i'm going to follow up with on that particular point then Mm. okay the biggest one is that yes so then the first night that they're there a couple soldiers are on guard and like the rumor has already been established that these crosses are made out of silver and so they're worth something one Mm. of the soldiers is even trying to pry it out and gets caught and that's when alexandru tells us no they're made out of nickel well that night the soldier on guard notices a light coming strongly from inside the keep and he goes and sees that one of these crosses is illuminated are we meant to take that literally i I couldn't i couldn't tell from i don't know yeah okay i assume so but maybe not okay but he goes gets another soldier is like i found it it's made out of silver you can see it glowing basically Mm -hmm. and i love the fact that they use both their knives and their guns to (laughs) to pry it out of the wall (laughs) oh man there's such a good comedy to be had and just them <laughs> shooting, them killing themselves in the process. Yeah, of that that, right? would have been, yeah, that would have been good. But they've got, they've got a harsher fate ahead of them, I think. And <laughs> so, and by the way, that aside, I liked this whole sequence. I thought it was really cool. Oh, yeah. They're prying this, this cross out and actually it ends up removing the entire block of stone. And then, then there's light inside what appears to be like this corridor, almost like a ventilation shaft if it were made out of, you know, metal or something. Mm-hmm. And so... They set up this tether system and one of the soldiers goes in thinking, oh, maybe there's treasure inside of this keep and that's what's being guarded here and we'll, we'll steal it and get rich. Uh, freaking Nazis. They're not Nazis, but come on. Uh, always stealing stuff. Anyway, Absolutely. there's an awesome shot where you see this guy, this soldier, reach the end of this little corridor and his head is peeking out into pitch black darkness. Yeah. And then we start to zoom out. And man, we zoom out to the point where he's just a little pinprick on the yeah. screen. And you're seeing the expanse of the keep and it is dark. And then there's yeah. a swoosh of lights that come flying by. Heading, heading towards it. Heading toward that guy. And <laughs> you know that's not going to be good. <laughs> no. And then there's a struggle and the other soldier pulls the tether out, and there's a lifeless body which is missing its upper half. Yeah, I thought that was all really cool. Yeah, I agree. Like it was, it's particularly during that shot of that, that long, you know, zooming back where I'm just like, man, this needs that 4K restoration. I mean, there's 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 just so much detail that's so barely much. hinted at in that in that standard depth. Yeah, you know, a copy that was just like this. This would be the moment where I would really appreciate some of that detail that they they got on film somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. It's not long after this then that we cut to Scott Glenn, 
who is Glaken, Glacken, whatever yeah. <laughs> his yeah. name is, he basically sits up in bed and his eyes light up. And he's got the weirdest contacts in, I guess are contacts, throughout this entire... He, he looks freaky as hell, yeah, right? Yeah, he does, he does. There's like these little particles of light falling down on him. Right. Uh, we find out that he's in Greece and he's going to get to Romania. And, okay, back to my problem here. Yeah. The next time we go back to the keep, we find out from Jurgen Prochnow that five of his men have died. Hmm. Okay, protocol says you got to put in a request to leave. If yeah. five men have died in this tiny town where there's only like eight people who live there, right? I'm getting out of that keep. Or it would have <laughs> been, it would have been nice to have been afforded the real estate to show their soldiers that want to get the f out of there oh yeah no kidding and then and proc now himself is like that's it after death number three we're not s sleeping the night in the keep everybody out will will post guard outside of it but no one's staying inside of this thing right 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 something yeah because otherwise it just seems something. like they're they're just like you know suicidal automatons like i don't you know that yeah someone's gonna I mean, die every night and there's yeah. just nothing we can do about it you know i mean that's really the strongest part of the book is is when they get into the keep. Lutz extracts the you know gets the opens opens the the crypt in essence, lets out the bad guy, and it just starts every night. It kills one guy, and there's just nothing yeah. you can do about it. And so it's like you have that that friction between what is reasonable and logical in the real world and this kind of supernatural stuff, and then trying to sort of accept that. And you know that's sort of an interesting thing. And then you know Jurgen Prochnow's character Warman you know, saying to German high command, hey, get me out of here. You know, something is murdering my men and and all that. That's just really interesting because it's like nothing nothing has been revealed yet. Everything is still mystery and you're just like right. building the premise. And he doesn't do any of that. No, and I, I think, I mean, the whole point of the movie, you could probably argue, is about duty versus sacrifice or, you know, something in that, yeah. that thematic ballpark, right? Absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so here's a perfect opportunity to establish some of that, at least for the Procnow character, if nothing else. Right. And it, it doesn't happen at all. And so that kind of bugged me. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I think and it would be interesting to know. I, I, I did find it kind of, I, I don't think there was in the movie the, the thing about, was there a mention of the note that said something is murdering my men? No, I don't recall that at all. So, I mean, to me, that's like, I don't know, one of the central images of the whole book is, is, is just that note, that sort of really restrained, you know, army professional desperation in just a few words and yeah. I, I can't help but think that that maybe that is some of the 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 stuff that got cut out. You know, maybe they're just like, no, we just need I to get right it. to it. But you know, the, here we have Michael Mann. You know, puts out this this movie. I he he kind of gets to have the best of both worlds because you know we don't know what <laughs> what he yep. did because he can't really blame came him. And, and big, yeah, exactly. But yeah, <laughs> here we have this movie, and you know, his name is still on it. So I do wonder about that. But I, I think that would have have gone a long way towards establishing the realism of, of the premise as opposed to just like this kind of dreamy and things happen and people come and they won't go. And yeah, that's right. I, I think uh, another thing I thought that would have helped too is like if they had established some sort of timeline or ticking clock, I guess, that a high-ranking Nazi official is coming through there. Yeah. Or they're expecting 
the enemy forces to head that they're, they're retreating to Romania, you know. Yeah. You're stationed here to keep them from getting through, right? There's something on the horizon that has to do with the war. <laughs> right. Um, right. And that and then it's like, okay, like yeah, you can't run, you know. Mm -hmm. That's why you're here. And that's why then it becomes important to send in Gabriel Byrne and his, you know, very high command Nazi yeah. and, and very sort of uh, stereotypically murderous Nazi who rolls yeah. into town in this little tank. and <laughs> Which was kind of ridiculous looking. Honestly. It was ridiculous. <laughs> it, it, I don't know. I thought it was kind of cool. I, I loved his yeah. haircut in this too. Like oh, he, man. He, he, plays, he plays that part fine. Yeah, he does. He does. But the first thing we see is that he's ordering the execution of like was it four or five local villagers there oh, yeah. and line them up against the wall and Proc now runs out to stop it but can't. Yeah. So automatically you've got this dichotomy between he and Gabriel Byrne and that again like at that point I'm like still kind of thinking that Proc now is a bad guy. Like, you know, I mean, he's a German. Mm. As far as I know, at, at this point, he is a Nazi until these guys show up. Right. I'm just conditioned to think that that's the wrong side of the war. Oh, <laughs> yeah, teams, absolutely. You know? Yeah, completely. And so to see him then have compassion for these villagers and stuff, it was, it was confusing, but it, it does create an interesting riff. But man, I think there's a huge problem with having him roll into town that way, Brian. Yeah. And that is because what we establish is Prognow at this point believes the villagers are not the one killing my soldiers. There's right. something else at play here. They discover this message written in some language that's not even Romanian on the wall. And there's only one person in the entire world who might know what it is. <laughs> and that, of course, is Ian McKellen, yes. his character, Dr. Cruza, who's off somewhere else because he's Jewish and is about to be sent to a concentration camp. But he did a study on the keep years ago, and he might be able to translate. So they bring him in, and his daughter Ava, played by Alberta Watson, and he translates that message. But then for the life of me, I don't know why Gabriel Byrne's character doesn't just get rid of them, doesn't kill them, doesn't kill Procknell right from the start when they have their disagreements. I mean... If you're rolling into town and murdering people from... <laughs> For no reason. Yeah. From the word go, I don't know. It's like it's hard to go back from that. Like you have to like proceed. <laughs> That's your baseline, you know? Yeah. Like you've got to be worse than that in a lot of ways. And it, I didn't know. I mean, I just found myself scratching their, my head. It's like, why, why, does he, why is he keeping these people alive? Why? why what, is, what is this? Like, what? Right. I don't know. So you tell me, is there anything in the book, and maybe I missed it in the film, as to what is McKellen's value to the war effort? <laughs> right, right. After he translates that message on the wall, which I'll look for what that meant. Oh, I will be free. That is right. what the message on the wall says. And right. clearly that's in regard to the demon, which we're getting to. If Paul Wilson did answer, like, I, I mean, these are sort of narrative problems and he, he has solutions for them. So it was okay, like good. they, they get there and some German soldiers like, look, we found all these books. There are all these books in all these different languages and only Theodore Cusa can, Ian McKellen can read them. Yeah. And, and so if, if there's anything 
they can do to, you know, uh, Akuza can do to interpret these books and to come up with a solution for whatever is hurting everybody or killing everybody, then, okay, we'll keep him around. And so the first night that he's there, no one dies. It's the first night since anyone, since the German army's been there that no one died. So they're like, oh, well, he's, you know, is that just a coincidence? Maybe we keep him right. around. And th- I think those books are, the books were in the movie, right? I mean, I feel like I'm, that's ringing a bell now. Uh, okay, yeah, may, may, yeah, maybe they were, maybe they were. So, so maybe that's, they, they do allude in some small way in the movie. But, you know, it's sort of interesting. There are some allusions to, like, you know, Lovecraft and, and these kind of books are all these sorts of supposed to be, like, the, you know, the most evil books. Mm. So I still question why they couldn't just, I don't know, all sleep outside of the keep and not die. <laughs> I know. I was wondering that, too. I'm just like, come on. Who's around to know? Yeah. You just have one guy in or... Kick the, you know? kick the villagers out of their houses and take their beds or something. I mean, you're <laughs> yeah, Nazis, exactly. like, for God's Or just, sake. just build cots that yeah. are on the other side of the causeway yeah. and make sure nobody gets in. I, I know. I, I had the same thoughts. I was just okay. like, guys, you know, don't, don't, you don't need to do this. To <laughs> if yourself. you're dying inside that room and you don't die outside the room, I, I say stay outside the room. That's <laughs> yeah, stay outside. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And, and you know, one thing is like, where, why couldn't we get like a single mat shot of the entire keep? That would have been nice. You yeah. know, just to just to get a sense, what does this thing look like? All we get it's are, kind of like, claustrophobic. We, yeah, yeah, we get a glimpse of the front. And then that's kind of it. And then little bits of the interior, but we never get like a sense of like, okay, this is the entirety of the geography where all this stuff is happening. And yeah. I don't know if that's by design or a budget thing, but I, I was, I was really wanting that. Like, like how, how nice would that have been just to see this is what the keep looks like. And just have somebody design cool, it. right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, what's there looks awesome. So yeah. Let me get back to the plot just a little bit here because here's the thing about McKellen. Like, he's in a wheelchair, right? Yeah. He's got something called sclerodioma, mm-hmm. which uh, Gretchen will define for me after she listens to this. <laughs> but it, it's basically causing advanced aging, you know. Right. He is 48 years old in the movie, even though he looks like he's 68, which, and I thought they did a good job of the makeup. Mm. I found myself questioning how old his daughter was. Because she looks like she's about 30-something. Yeah, she wasn't quite as young as I was picturing, you know, from... Yeah. If he had a kid when he was 20, she could be 28, you know. Yeah, and, sure. Okay, yeah, I'll buy that. That's true. So they, they started young. Anyway. <laughs> she's there, and... Golly. What, they're there that first night. She walks through the area where all these soldiers are. She goes to the mess hall to get something to eat, and it's it's just not a good not a good scene there, Brian. No, the, no. the men are men, and uh, they are pigs. And next thing you know, is she's walking around the corner, and is essentially grabbed by two German soldiers who at least appear to begin the process of raping her. Yeah, I was having trouble figuring out, uh, you know, is is this uh, crime being truly perpetrated yet or not? Yeah, I, I, I It kind of looked like it. It, it did. There's it a did shot where like the that. legs are in the air. and uh, yeah. But this, if memory serves, is, is this our first look at the demon itself? Yes. Or no? I think at this point, it's only wind and light that comes for them, right? Yeah, at this point, yeah, you see some clouds and some smoke. and But yeah, we don't, before this moment, we don't, We this is yeah. the first time we're seeing them, yeah. Cloud smoke, they suck the light out of these German soldiers' eyes. One of their heads explodes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. One of their heads explodes. Um, it's all 
fascinating stuff. It looks cool. <laughs> yeah, Eva sure. is carried off by this smoke monster. And we see like red claws and you're seeing like veins. It's got mm-hmm. red eyes. I thought yeah. the smoke effect was awesome. Yeah. I did question and write down. So we have some sort of demon here yeah. that specifically just killed two would-be rapists and did not harm a girl, which implies a conscience of some kind. Yes. And an ability to de- to determine good from from evil in the moment, and um, that's an interesting thing. That's, uh... <laughs> yeah, and it's like uh, cribbed in a way from the the book because it's like the demon does this in his effort to corrupt Doctor Kuza. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. By saving his daughter's life, he puts Kuza in his debt. And, and, and as, as, as you find later in the movie, he really needs Kuza to do what he needs to do. And so it's all calculated. There, there's, gotcha. no, there's no morality there. But it's like none of that is sort of is built up in the slightest. I mean, by this time in the book, you know, Kuza and Malasar have already had a conversation. You know, where he's like, you know, you know who I happen to be and blah, 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 you know. Okay, well, that was my next note. What I recall is there's basically a scene where Ian McKellen is backing up into a corner. You know, we see that this demon is there. He's like, I don't know, like seven feet tall or something like that. Massive, you know, well, I'm sure we'll throw a picture of him up or something. (laughs) Please, we have to. I'm trying to think where I learned that this thing was called Molasar. I don't know that I remember someone saying that and that it showed up in the subtitles when I had the closed captions. <laughs> oh, Did someone yeah. establish his name in the film? I can't recall either. Where would it have come in? Unless, uh, unless does he say what he is? Does he say his name when he... Because when he, he does speak to, to um, Ian McKellen and maybe he says that his name then. Is that when it's... When I it's mean... Said? I'm gonna just assume that it was, and then, yeah. but that also invites the whole backstory of well, how like what the hell does Ian McKellen really know? Molasar, yeah. like he, this guy's <laughs> got a name, and <laughs> yeah. right, they do. They have a conversation, and you know he says, yeah. "Why are you here?" And Molasar says, "I need an ally, but you, you collaborate." This is no, no, I don't. Yeah. McKellen no. is saying, "I don't, don't accuse me of collaborating with Nazis. You know, they'll kill me." Um, you know, and basically explains concentration camps, I think, to him or something. Right. Maybe that was a little bit later. Yeah. But let's talk about this because I know not only have you written a monster movie, but you've seen your fair share. Certainly. It, it is an interesting decision to have like your supernatural element, your monster in this case, be capable of conversation. <laughs> You know? Oh, yeah. yeah. Because I, I started this movie not expecting that. And I'm watching it. And I even wrote down, it's like, you know, you look at this and I found myself thinking about Alien, Ridley Scott's movie, mm-hmm. and whether this movie would ex- it exist in its like visual form if Alien had not come along. You know, like it just thinking about um, how much that sort of changed. That's a good point. I, I wonder to what extent right. Michael Mann was influenced by you know, Alien, which was not like a dialogue heavy movie. No, um, and I don't even not not necessarily even subject matter, but just the look of it. But you know, like yeah, in that movie, you know, the, the alien never. Yeah, talks. you're not going to have a conversation with. You're, you're right. It's like does having it a conversation yeah. with the monster 
completely remove some of the mystery that you you like an essential component of like having a scary monster. Yes. And and what it made me think of was there's a novel by a lady named Elizabeth Kostova called The Historian. And it's a it's a big fat book and it's all about these people finding out that Dracula was a real guy and hunting for any artifact of him and then actually the protagonist of the novel the the, the lady talks to him. And it's like it's this awesome scene where yeah. you know you you get to talk to Dracula and he gets to talk about what he thinks of everything that's gone on and it's just like riveting kind of stuff. And to me, this was that. And and it's like it's actually even more explicit in the, in the book where because the conversations that Kuza and Molisar have in the novel are are far more I guess conversational I guess than what this interaction they have in the movie is it's just very like yeah very angry and then you know it's just mostly yeah it's very emotional but in this one it's just like you know he offers his opinions on things and blah blah blah. and and it, it was hard for me at that point to view him as anything other than a character you know, yeah, not, yeah, a, not a monster. Right. He becomes like another character, and you know, it didn't make it less interesting, but it did make it less scary. And I don't know if if Michael Mann was essentially trapped into that, based on just like I'm going to adapt the keep, so yeah. my my monster is going to talk, and I'm going to find I have to find some way to make him scary. And I think that Michael Mann took the middle ground, so he said I'm going to make him talk a little bit. But then he's not going to talk a whole lot, and then he get, he just gets to be kind of a scary seven foot tall monster with smoke smoke effects right. and that sort of thing. So well, I don't yeah. know if it was successful or not. I mean, I, I didn't. You know, the movie to me was not was not scary. I, I and you yeah. know I don't know if that's part in part because of how very much of its time it was and the score being very you know synth and weird and or what. But I I think it may just been structurally not able to to really deliver on scares the way it was built. Well, I think part of the problem is the creature design a little bit because the mouth is unable to move really in time with the dialogue. So <laughs> that's that's a problem. You know, you get you get yeah. a little bit of that effect, which I don't know. I can kind of forgive that. It didn't really bother me, but What do you think of that creature design? I don't know. You know, he goes in stages and I definitely prefer the earlier stages where he's not mm-hmm. complete, you know, he's sort of adding uh, pounds of flesh, basically, oh, uh, yeah. this blue flesh over time. Um, and by the end of it, yeah, it, it looked a little cartoony to me versus yeah. being something a little more horrific uh, in the earlier stages. And, yeah, like uh, there was that one effect of, I guess, the cloud, the the, the smoke cloud as it was coming down the hallway. Cool, man. Yeah. That was a great effect, I thought. Mm-hmm. If they if they had kept with that a little bit, with just, you know, maybe like the red eyes showing, it, it felt... It was so funny. I was watching. I was reminded of Lord of the Rings. You know, have Ian McKellen backing away from yeah. you know this this red eyed creature in, in in the black smoke, and I'm just like, you know, it's going to say, "You shall not pass" or something. But I, I still I, prefer I, this to a lot of the CGI in Lord of the Rings, by the way. So. <laughs> yeah, there's something nice about how how practical oh, some God, of these yeah, effects yeah. are. But um, yeah, I, I guess I just want to, before we move too further on the plot, I want to I want to touch briefly on the scene, the short scene in the concentration camp. I thought it was weird. It just felt like a lot of people kind of stuck at a at a bus depot yeah. or something, you know. It, it, and I and I wonder how much of that is is because of where the culture was in terms of depicting 
the Holocaust and depicting concentration camps. I didn't even know that's where they were at first. Yeah, yeah, because it, like it doesn't look anything like you know Schindler's List, basically. No, yeah, exactly. And so, so I think you know modern audiences, or at least you know post nineteen ninety two or three audiences who've seen Schindler's List, it's like anything that veers away from that. Well, it better veer away from that for a good reason. Yeah. So it it, it just felt very much like pre schindler's list and also kind of like it, it just didn't feel right it felt like they they were on holiday <laughs> yeah like no, they, they were kind of you know kind of undermining like the horror of the holocaust by showing a, a a fairly you know like an unpleasant but not not terrible place um and, and so that was sort of confusing to me and also uh ian mckellen's old makeup I thought it was good. It reminded it, when he was in that makeup. It reminded me of uh, Mr. Shika Dance from uh, Ace Ventura: Pet Detective. If you say uh, so, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take your word on that one. Well, he also that guy also played Junior in Breaking Bad. If that rings any bells. Oh God. No, not not Junior. Um, uh, Uncle Tio. Uncle Tio. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He did look a little Uncle Tio esque. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it was just it was just funny seeing better like, reference this, by the way. Much better yeah. reference. No, go ahead. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but but I, I just it was interesting to see what Ian McKellen thought. This is what someone who is sixty years old <laughs> yeah. will, will, will be like. And I was like, we're now in the the catbird. We know what he looks. We like. know what he does. And it's like it ain't that, buddy. You don't look like that. Yeah. No. Definitely. <laughs> But, well, and it's funny, too, because, uh, yeah, we, I mean, the old makeup, we should mention, like, yeah, in that first scene that he has with the Molazar, the demon, the demon kind of, like, zaps him with his veiny red hand, and yeah. it removes the disease from his body. And so here we do get a look at what 48-year-old Ian McKellen, That's right. or however old he was when he made this, what it looks like. Yeah. And that was fascinating to see. I just, it was, I, mean, yeah. I, I love seeing these actors sort of paint, which makes it painful for me to say, I didn't really like any of their performances. I thought Gabriel Byrne was okay, given what he had to do. But I thought, I thought Jurgen Prochnow, like when he was really going full at it against uh, Gabriel Byrne, I just like, it just felt kind of forced and, yeah. and uh, fakey. And then Ian McKellen, I was very surprised. I thought he was all over the place. Sometimes I thought he was doing a, a, an American accent, sometimes like a British or something like that. And it was sort of just like weird to me. I, so I don't know. I, I, I was expecting, you know, just a, an early glimpse of Ian McKellen's brilliance. But to me, this felt very much like a, kind of a learning movie for him, where it's just like, you know, uh, it, it, it was it was not the, the tour de force that all of his, his sort of, you know, later acting would sort of suggest. I mean, there's that moment when, when and I think this may just be staging, but um, Gabriel Byrne or, or is, is, is sort of walking alongside him as they're going down the hallway and Ian McKellen's in his wheelchair. And uh, Gabriel Byrne says something, you know, that makes uh, Ian McKellen angry. And, and Ian McKellen has this kind of like faux weak, like trying to like get at him or something like that. And it just it just felt it felt so forced and not real. And I was like, you know, I, I have to put some of that on Michael Mann, like, you know, do, do yeah. another take, you know, make that. But it just it just that, that sort of moment where you're just like, that doesn't that doesn't seem real. <laughs> happens over and over again and i don't know if it's just michael mann was checked out it's like well none of it's real everything should be like weird and forced and high drama and all this stuff i, I don't know but I, yeah. it just kept coming up oh man yeah there's a moment towards the end that mckellen really bites into okay good let's shift attention just a little bit and establish this the scott glenn glaken connection here yes. because yeah, so the last time we've seen him, he's headed to Romania. He does indeed roll into town on a motorcycle. 
and is stopped by guards at a checkpoint, uh, Nazi soldiers, but he flashes his light-up eyes, <laughs> rolls on in town, yeah. and takes up residence in, a, in an available room here. Ava Cruza, after almost being raped, or being raped, seems like it, yeah. is basically forced out of the keep, by Gabriel Byrne. I don't even remember the reasons. I guess she's a distraction to the poor horny soldiers. Yes. Her father's still inside, so she goes to just find a room in the village, and there's only one available there, and it's with Scott Glenn. And, boy, within minutes, we're having sex. <laughs> yes, very, and, very erotic Michael Mann-style 86. It is, I mean, yeah. but like the way he looks at her from their first conversation, that's that's like an instant restraining order, right? Like, <laughs> it's just so yeah, creepy. Yeah. And, I mean, but, you know, he's clearly supernatural, so I'm not like right. faulting Scott. <laughs> I'm not saying Scott Glenn is that creepy. I'm just saying like in this movie. Right. <laughs> it is so problematic and like especially you saying that they really i mean obviously they cut some stuff out here for mm -hmm. that relationship but yeah. to have it come immediately on the hills of her being raped oh yeah she's just you know what i'm in the mood for is a good romp now with scott glenn to wash that away you know yeah it no is kidding. uh that is something that will never stand the test of time no matter <laughs> what the director's cut looks like. I don't know how he would get around that. I think it would be really difficult. That's so true. Yeah, it also just sort of is like maybe the most illustrative example that I can think of to the feeling of this entire movie having a timeline that in watching it feels like it's taking place over the course of about three days, if that. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. I can tell that that's not supposed to be the case, but it sure feels like it. If you're not completely locked into this movie you might miss that yeah it's super hard to figure out what what the time elapsed is in, yeah. in, in this movie that's so that's very true oh one interesting thing at this moment uh speaking speaking about glaken in the book he doesn't go by glaken we only find out that he's he's glaken at the end what he goes by is glenn oh interesting yeah and so then it's like the casting people like yeah yeah, Scott Glenn. Hey, he's Glenn. Let's do it. So I, I was just, I was just surprised. I was like, oh, Glenn, that's funny. Come on, Glenn. <laughs> Does it say why he's called Glaken? Yeah, because um, he and Molasar, whose actual name is Rasalom. No, it's not like Larry or something. <laughs> Lair, as he's called by his friends. Yeah, no, they're um, they're like these beings from an ancient race and. The book gets into this like crazy stuff. I'm just like, oh, all right, okay. I'm, I I get why. Yeah, Michael Mann need all of that. No, you do not need all that. But anyway, they 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 come from uh, long before recorded history, and they're like two peas in a pod in a way, good and evil. Actually, you know, Scott Glenn built the keep many millennia ago to yeah. keep Mol Molasar or Rosalom in. Well, that's a good transition. Then let's talk about that because we'll get in the meat potatoes here of what actually the whole point of this is about as far as yes. it pertains to the monster inside the keep. And uh, maybe there's some stuff from the book that will help explain the hell out of it. Because <laughs> you need it, right? I need a little bit of it, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, it's not in the movie, yeah. Okay, so 
I don't know. I'm, well, I have one thing in particular I'm curious about if that was an invented device. McKellen and Molisar have another conversation, and this is when McKellen explains that the villagers, the people, are being killed by the Nazis, you know, and Molisar doesn't even understand what that is, and when he explains it, boy, he gets mad, and he's, I will destroy them! <laughs> right. You know, he says, I will consume their lives hmm. when I am complete, uh, in two nights, if I can leave this place. You know, so there's a couple of conditions on that. Yeah, a couple of caveats to that, yeah. Mm-hmm. He basically explains that there is an object that is the origin of all his powers, and uh, that is a talisman that is inside the keep but must be removed and hidden in the mountains to keep the people of the village safe because he, you see, is their protector. And uh, <laughs> he needs this done by someone that he can trust. And only then he can leave. And so he asked McKellen to be that person to carry this thing out of there and hide it for him. And, you know, on the one hand, I did find that interesting in that it was unexpected. You know, I, I you know, at this point, you don't have a ton of reason to think, okay, this, this thing is just lying about all this, I guess. Right. On the other hand, I did kind of ask, well, isn't this thing that this talisman, so it's not safe inside the keep? Right. It's like kind of a, a, a weak lie. Yeah, like who would know about this if you didn't just tell Ian McKellen, right? Right. So whatever, you know, there's that. <laughs> Is the talisman, because it's, you know, it's always like, I don't know, it seems a little easy to me plot-wise to have something, oh, there's this thing this object that's the source of all my powers you know is that in the book yeah and it's like molestar's whole thing is like i I, okay i'm out and there's this one thing this talisman he like in the book and in the movie he he needs that thing taken out but he can't touch it because it's anathema to him or something what's more interesting in the book i thought was was the the subject matter of his lies what he's saying is is that yeah me and and dracula vlad tepes like i was his last guy i was his right hand man all the vampire myths come from me and so it's like oh that's interesting like that's why we're here in the transylvanian alps we're talking to the actual originator of the dracula myth and whatever and that's kind of interesting oh and he's like you know he's a wallachian so he doesn't like interlopers and so you know kuza tells him about hitler and he's like, oh, this guy sounds terrible. I, you know, why would he do this to my fellow Romanians? I will, I will kill him. And so it, what's interesting is the way that corrupts Kuza because Kuza's like, you know, all I have to do is like bring this talisman out and he's going to go out and kill the German army yeah. and kill Hitler. And he's going to deliver us from Hitler. And, An enemy you know, of your enemy is, is a friend, yes, right? Yeah. exactly. And so only at the end does he sort of realize, you know, barely that, no, this guy is actually much worse than Hitler, and he's unchecked, and if he, you know, he'd take over the whole world, blah, blah, blah. So, to me, that is interesting, the, to the extent to which uh, Molisar is lying. And, and so, you know, we, we pick up on that, where he's just like, you know, he's, he's so theatrically like, oh, I'm going to get them. And Kuza's like, oh, I, I could, I could, you know, I'll, I'll help you if you'll do that. Man, that would have been so much more compelling, at least in the sense of a movie. Yeah. If McKellen's daughter 
was be you know like in the act of being threatened to be executed or sent to a concentration camp by the Nazis then right. and there and here's this monster saying make a deal with the devil essentially right oh yeah you know, I mean yeah, it's like all the pieces are right there in front of <laughs> oh absolutely and, and you know Wilson does it even better because he kind of gives it a ticking clock because yeah. the place that Gabriel Byrne is heading is Ploesti and in in the the universe of the book like he is on his way there to start a new Dachau Auschwitz style concentration right. camp to kill Romanian Jews and Roma and everything. Uh, yeah. So so if they can kill him, then they can at least delay that for you know it's Dude, wartime. That's, so yeah, it, it's so much more interesting. Yeah, so that makes that makes sense. So it's like you get you get a sense of you can't just dismiss Kuza and and the way he's being corrupted because his aims are you know completely justified right yeah. so so that aspect is a little more interesting even if you know the writing is is kind of you know ham-fisted and all that but but you know uh, wilson did a lot of the heavy lifting that kind of makes the story work that that i you know michael mann or the studio kind of said nah let's just let's get it let's, let's do away with that and so you miss out on a lot of that that stuff that kind of baseline stuff you need to really be invested in a story right yeah, it's interesting. I don't know. I mean, we do find out not long after this from Scott Glenn, you know, you get the other side of the coin here when he explains to Ava, the talisman, in fact, is the thing keeping all the repressed evil of mankind from the world, essentially. Mm. And that um, it's been there for ages. Uh, he's a part of what's kept it inside all these years. And he's come to this town essentially to destroy this demon for good i'm guessing there's some omniscient yeah. uh knowledge that he has that uh it's been awoken you know that's where the lights come into play earlier in the film right 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 if molasar leaves the keep it will spread all that evil to the world or even i think if the talisman leaves the keep right yeah and, and it's sort of interesting as, as molasar in, in the book they kind of keep pulling the the uh, the keep apart brick by brick because they're looking for any secret passages or anything where molasar could be coming from oh god that's good too why is that not in the movie <laughs> and and so each time they do they weaken the keep and and molasar's evil gets further out so that yeah. you have villagers like it's just like opening getting, the arc, right? Yeah. Oh, well, you know, it's like what well, that when the guy's head exploded. I mean, I mean, did you think first thing at the end of Raiders of Lost Ark? Yeah, I mean, for sh- the effects and stuff too, or a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um. But but yeah. So the, the villagers start, you know, sniping at each other, and like you know, one one husband kills a wife because there's just so much evil there and and around the keep. I was like, yeah, that's kind of cool. But you know, again, they they, they kind of left some of that out. Well, yeah. all of that out. Another problematic thing for me, like on the tail end of that conversation that, that Glenn has with Ava Cruza, he says, when Molasar goes, I go. Basically saying they're both going to ah, die. Right. She is hurt by this and says, literally, why then did you become my lover? Which, again, it's all feel like this has happened within hours since <laughs> they met. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And his answer, and it's supposed to be, like, poetic or something. It's played like that. You know, he says, to experience the touch that only mortal men can. I mean, there was something along those lines, right? Yeah, right, right, right. And so it's like, oh, so you just basically wanted to have sex one last time? I mean, it, <laughs> yeah, you yeah. could interpret it as that. There's no yeah, way around it. You know, it's just like, well, what the hell is she thinking right now? <laughs> it's not really justified. I thought that was problematic. There was a lot problematic. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, 
McKellen wheels himself out of the keep. <laughs> nobody, mm-hmm. nobody tries to stop him. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's, that's weird. To me. Yeah, I was like, how does he get up? Yeah, yeah. He meets Glaken, I think, for the first time, and he's there, and some and some of that conversation, I think, maybe overlaps or whatever. But it's imported to him by Ava that Glaken is saying this thing, and he cannot take the talisman out of the keep. I like that. That's a good dramatic like decision that he has to face about what he's going to do. Oh, yeah. you know, uh, who do you trust? This weirdo with crazy eyes or this demon that you've seen in the flesh? Yeah, who says he's going to you know help you end the war or whatever. Rid yeah. the world of Nazis, yeah. So that's what we're building to. In the meantime, there's more debate going on between uh, Gabriel Byrne and Proc now. Mm-hmm. It doesn't add a ton to the movie at this point i don't it sure doesn't think because again it hasn't been fleshed out there's some good lines there burn yeah. says to proc now you despise our ruthlessness which i thought was interesting and then yeah proc now says to him like screams at him you have infected millions with your, your twisted fantasies yeah. which i mean it's a good line i don't i was like well huh what like <laughs> Yeah, it's Gabriel like, burned. I mean, is he just talking like about the Nazi party specifically? Right. Like, twisted fantasy. I don't know. Yeah, it, it it was a little grandiose for what was happening in in the keep in the scene. It's like yeah, yeah. it felt like they were just trying to give them something to do. Like you can't get yeah. these actors without having a scene like something like that. Right. Which made which made me sad that they they kind of uh, you know again coming back to the book because the the Warman and uh, and, and Kekner or whatever the guy's name what Gabriel Burns. I don't remember this. Yeah. They had had a moment together in World War One where Prochnow, who was younger, had been heroic. He'd stayed on a machine gun, whereas uh-huh. Gabriel Byrne had slinked away. Oh, and they, they had they had both gone into different directions. Prochnow was a war hero, and he'd gone high up in the uh, the German army. Whereas Gabriel Byrne's character, he wasn't really fit for anything. But you know, the SS would take him because you know you don't have to be good; you just have to be mean and ruthless. And so when when they meet up at the keep. The dynamic is so much more interesting because Gabriel Byrne is so resentful of Prochnow, but also kind of like worshipful in a way, like he resents him for how good he is. Yeah. And and there's all this power dynamic where Gabriel Byrne thinks he's going to take over command and he's going to take over the quarters that um, that Prochnow has had. And Prochnow is just like, you know, of course, that's not going to happen. You know, get out. And, and he gets out. And and so Wolverman, Prochnow's character, has so much more power and it just makes it so much more interesting because it's like it gives Gabriel Burns character time to erode that and to to work away at that and and make that dynamic happen and and you know with as much screen time as those two guys had I'm not sure why you don't give them that more interesting story than than this thing which kind of just gives Proc now some space to speechify about yeah. the evils of Nazism, which, you know, didn't really, really land well. No, and especially not at that point in the movie. I mean, you're really no. like, at this point, you're just like, what is going on with this Molazar guy, really? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Then, then you bring it back to the real world. No, we're out of the real world now. Let's, let's stick with Molazar. I know. And again, like even as cliche is not the right word, but as much as we've seen like the completely devoid of morality Nazi soldier in film before, or, mm-hmm. you know, here it's not shown to us. It's told to us in that moment, that scene that Byrne has executed women and children. Mm-hmm. I again found myself thinking, okay, but I guess just not the Jewish cruises who are sitting right there in his <laughs> lap, you know, and this is right, like, right. the poor woman has been through enough, but 
had he killed Ava in this film out of pure cold blood, that would have been a moment, right? Like that oh, would yeah. have been something. And it would, I feel like it would be sort of in line with what I'm told this character is, you know, and oh, what we man. saw when he rolled into that town. Anyway, it yeah. doesn't happen. What happens is they get distracted by the noise of Molossar. Procknow reaches for the cross that is on the table and Burns shoots him in the back, kills him. Yeah. Burns picks up the cross. It was interesting that faced with this devil, he asked Jesus to protect him. <laughs> Do you remember that line being in the book? Um, no, it was the, the cross yeah. was sort of an interesting thing, but I, there, I don't recall that. Okay, no. it felt like a movie thing. Yeah. But if I'm not mistaken, he also asked Molossar where he's from. He replies, I am from you. And he kills mm. Gabriel Byrne. Right. So after that, you've got your two big German soldiers dead now. Yeah. We're left with the Cruzas, Glaken, and Molossar. What's Ian McKellen going to do? He decides to get the talisman. Now, we talked about this last time. I mean, there's that guy, the production designer that won Oscars for Lawrence of Arabia, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Crane, that talisman looks like a flashlight. It is not <laughs> a good design decision, no, I no, felt like. It's not. However, one of my favorite shots in the film, which I think is in the trailer, is the shot of McKellen walking in slow motion oh. down that corridor with those crosses. Light, lighting up there. They periodically light up his face. Yeah, there. and, yeah, and yeah. it's just uh, it's it's got a great a shot. Really cool look to it. So in that moment, we cut to Scott Glenn. He opens up this case that he's had that he brought with him into this town that looks like maybe it's holding a pool cue and he's going to go <laughs> play some billiards. Uh, no, it's there's like a steel tube inside of it. He touches it. It lights up. It you know, admits red light. McKellen comes out of the keep. He's got the talisman. He's screaming to Ava. I did notice his voice changed back a little bit to the growl that he had when he was sick. Uh, she screams and begs to him to, to take it back, like that it's changing him already. You know, it's it's the ring in Lord of the Rings, right? Right, yeah. Does yeah, it turn yeah, you into a good right. person? It corrupts you. <laughs> yeah. And from inside the keep, Molossar yells for McKellen to kill Ava. You get a drawn-out moment a little bit where maybe he's thinking about doing that, but then he turns and says he won't, and he asks what kind of person. God. Guy. God, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. He yeah. is, Molossar is, that he requires the proof of him killing his daughter, uh, his own child. Mm -hmm. That's the turn for McKellen to understand that what Glaken has prophesized is in fact right. Right. I don't remember who exactly he was yelling to, I guess Molossar, but he screams, take it, <sighs> at least three or four times. And that was where I was like, Maybe yeah, that's you do another take and let's let's back <laughs> off like thirty percent on that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's turn the volume down on that just a touch. We yeah. got that in the can. Let's do another. <laughs> uh, we'll just see in editing. You never know which one is going to use. Yeah, that was that was a good opportunity for a second or third take. Yeah, yeah totally. he gets zapped again by Molossar. He goes back to his sixty-eight-year-old diseased self. Mm -hmm. Glaken comes out of the fog. He picks up the talisman, the flashlight, attaches it to <laughs> his tube. And now, tube. <laughs> I don't know what else to call it, right? No, it's a big metal tube. It is. Yeah. It's not really a staff. Um, no, it's only like three no. feet long. <laughs> but light shoots out of it. It illuminates all those crosses in the keep, zaps Malazar with pink light, and mm. kind of pulls him back into the keep. 
I thought that was yeah. cool. I got no no real beef with that. I don't know. The pink light would have been my first choice. Yeah, I might not have gone that route. Yeah. And then, you know, it felt like movie moment again where you're trying to get a little emotion out of Ava knows that Glaken now has to go, right? It's his turn. Mm-hmm. And right. they sort of reach out for one another. He reaches out through the fog. He eventually gets pulled back into the light and the smoke of the keep. She screams like she just lost her husband of 65 years. <laughs> Instead of her, her boyfriend of uh, four days at most, yeah. Yeah, we just broke up with her before that. Yeah, that's right, that's right. The villagers help Dr. Cruza to his feet. And we freeze frame on Ava. She's not giving a high five to anybody like you predicted. <laughs> that was close, though. Yeah, but she looks solemnly at the keep, and that's it. That's the end of this that's, thing. That's the movie, yeah. Again, it, it really felt like you were feeling the edits in the last mm. bit of the movie because yeah. I want to make sure that I'm crystal clear on the fact that I still liked a lot of this movie. I, I Story-wise, I think, yeah, it's, it's kind of a mess here and there, uh, or just yeah. missed opportunities, I guess, that I do think would be fleshed out and, and make the novel maybe the better story of the two. Mm-hmm. But as far as mood goes, it's got it in spades, right? I mean, I, I kind of feel yeah. like that's why he made this thing, you know? It's just like, Oh, completely. Just yeah. to have kind of like a, a really cool haunted house story where he can just work on creating dread and mm-hmm. atmosphere and all that stuff. It's a, it's a great palette you know, to, to totally. paint from, you know, so I totally get that. And, and I, I did like um, a, quite a bit of this movie, but with some of, like you say, the missed opportunities and, and some of the really kind of uh, really brutal editing that they did to bring this down to whatever the screen time was, it just, it felt, um, it felt like a, a much worse experience than it, than, than it should have been. I still feel like there is a solid movie there. Yeah, totally. I think with this movie, like if, if Michael Mann could be, you know, convinced to sit down and, and, and try to cobble something more together with the footage that he had, which I don't think would ever happen. No. And you get a new, and you get a new score. Oh, okay. Well, let's talk about, you don't, you didn't like the score ultimately. Um, ultimately, no, I didn't. Okay. I just thought it was, it was very, um, well, this is one of the reasons that I, I wonder about Hans Zimmer's staying power because, <laughs> um, I, 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 I feel like, um, you know, the orchestral scores, those are gonna, those are gonna last for the most part. And, but I feel like the synthy stuff, cause synth is really very, uh, majestic synth now, and, you know, Hans Zimmer and that whole school of, of film score. Well, it's also retro, uh, in, in style again, you know, stranger things, obviously. Oh, absolutely. That's true. So I, I just, I wonder about it, but if he did all that, but then leaving aside all that, just like leaving this movie all by itself alone and just saying, what's the story? I feel like there is. Um, a good movie that could be made from from this this novel really cool not not necessarily that anyone needs to you know revisit a essentially an out of print novel from 1981 <laughs> to get their material but if they wanted to i think there there's something there's something useful there but um tv series or film that's the ultimate question these days right right i don't think this this could withstand a tv series um i i, I think at the end of the day this is just a well-produced, well-written movie, uh, you know, a standard two-hour thing. I think you could do it. I feel like they almost did it here. Yeah. So um, I, I think that would probably be the best way to, to sort of uh, tell this story. Yeah. Well, we actually, yeah, we didn't get to see the two-hour version of this movie. So no, we never did. We well, never did. 
again, I enjoy the experience of it. I mean, I think I could watch this again and probably be much more forgiving of the story elements and just enjoy like the coolness of it, I guess, and, and yeah. the, the visual aspect of it and everything. And by that extent, I say people ought to go see it, um, especially those Michael Mann nerds out there. If you know, if you haven't checked this one off of his filmography, uh, yeah, it's a good one to do because I sure as hell don't know of anything else quite like this no. that he's done ever. No, definitely not. Yeah, definitely a recommend for Michael Mann completionists and <laughs> um, anybody who just wants to see the state of. Uh, big budget horror movies that didn't do well in the early eighties, which, you know, the, the, the sort of film scene is sort of littered with those. And, and, and this is an interesting example. I mean, just mm -hmm. the, the production values there, the cast is there. And, and also just as, as seeing young Gabriel Byrne, seeing young Ian McKellen, I mean, that, that even if I wasn't, you know, enthralled with, with their performances, it was still just, really fun to watch them yeah. in a movie from then. It felt it felt like kind of a gift from, from time to see this. I thought that was very cool. If you're looking for just a solid movie, then you're just like, you know, something you'll be happy to have watched. I don't know if this one's for you. Uh, you got to be really into at least some component of it. But for, for film nerds and especially Michael Mann uh, uh, folks, this is, this is a, a must watch. Once again, top 50 WW2 movie of all time, folks. <laughs> That's right. Yes, soak it in. All right, well, we enjoyed it. We're back next week. We're going to talk about another film and tee it on up, so come back and join us. Brian, any last words, sir? Um, just just like uh, Gene Shaw would say, um, <laughs> you're going to keep the keep. Yeah, no, I, I don't know. <laughs> Good enough for me. All right, we'll talk later. Bye. Bye.